I chose this episode's subject after thinking about the literary canon of all things. Starting in the 18th century, a bunch of old white dudes in academia began using the term canon to informally label an assortment of writers who are the essential, important voices of the artistic spirit, at least according to them. The literary canon has come under fire in recent decades since it was formed in times of white supremacist patriarchy, and the humanities have diversified at least a little bit since then. Most English professors will concede that Jane Austen and James Baldwin are important authors, but some still contest that having a literary canon as a concept is, in and of itself, myopic. Naturally, establishment figures, most notably Harold Bloom, have pushed back against this, but that hasn't stopped people from questioning how the canon is shaped and why. At some point, a few dozen stuffed shirts decided that The Great Gatsby is the great American novel, and now everyone has to read it in high school. Now, the question of The Great Gatsby's artistic validity is one thing, but I personally think that a more interesting question in this idiom is why The Great Gatsby impressed academic gatekeepers as much as it did in the first place. You know, what forces elevated it to its current stature? Now, I don't think there's an apples-to-apples -apples comparison when it comes to a prospective film canon. Film is a much younger medium. The process for producing and releasing films is wildly different, and watching a shitload of movies doesn't have nearly as much a cultural cred as being well-read. Still, film does have a presence in academia, and there's definitely a loose assortment of critics, professors, industry professionals, and so on, who are dictating what qualifies as a great film and what doesn't. We've covered plenty of movies that are definitely in the film canon, but so far I think we've only done stuff that's been widely seen even outside of movie dorks like myself. I mean, guys who think that the Olive Garden is fancy have probably seen The Godfather. Hey, you know what? Don't diss the breadsticks. They are salty. <laughs> so I decided to pick something that is widely acclaimed as a masterpiece and has obvious cultural influence extending to the present day, but is not as widely seen as The Wizard of Oz or Casablanca. I think Rebel Without a Cause qualifies as this. I'm guessing that most of the people who are at least tangentially interested in film have heard about Rebel Without a Cause, but I suspect a good chunk of those people haven't bothered to see it. So we're talking about that one this time. My name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive. And joining me is Rachel, who has just seen it for the first time. Yeah, I've never actually seen it. Um, like, I obviously know who James Dean was and everything. But yeah, I'd never seen it before. And like, one thing that I, when I was watching this with Ryan is that I burst out of laughing when James Dean goes, you're staring me apart because I've seen The Room many a times in James Dean and Rumble Without a Cause means a lot to Tommy Wiseau. So he tried to recreate it and instead created one of the funniest moments in what is already a hilarious movie. However, unintentional. Yeah, at this point in time, if you've seen Rebel Without a Cause, you've probably seen stuff that is referencing it or making fun of it or is paying some kind of a tribute to it well before you've seen yeah, Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, like, once I recognized the planetarium, I was like, it's the planetarium for BoJack! Now I'm gonna be sad! Yeah, it's like, <laughs> bad things are gonna happen in that planetarium. Uh, yeah. Alright, well, if you don't have any other instant hot takes you want to throw out before we get to the plot recap, I'll start the uh, plot no, recap. No, right now. Okay. The film is set in Los Angeles in the then-present day of 1955, where we see teenager, well. scare quotes, Jim Stark <laughs> getting arrested and taken to the juvenile division of a police station for plain drunkenness. They thought he might have been involved in a scuffle earlier, but no, they just found him playing with a toy monkey on the street. Wearing a suit and tie. <laughs> <laughs> the 50s, everybody dresses up, even the bums. 
At the station, he meets John Plato Crawford, who was brought in for killing a litter of puppies, which is something that they never bring up again. Yeah, they never bring that up again. And, like, usually that's, like, if you kill a dog in a movie, you're instantly, like, bad person. Although Plato is supposed to be sympathetic, and I find him one of the more sympathetic characters in the movie. Yeah, we also meet Judy, who has been brought in for a curfew violation. She got into an argument with her folks and stormed out and just sort of wandered the street for a bit. Although the police suspect that she was looking for trouble yeah hint hint sex work but yeah i feel kind of bad for judy because like honestly the one thing that got to me is that she talks about this horrifying story of almost domestic violence from her dad and then they're like would you like us to call your father and it's like your mother's coming to get you and that she freaks out even more and that's never really elaborated on later in the movie yeah, it is intimated that all of them have some kind of trouble. Uh, Jim feels betrayed and anguished by his constantly bickering parents, Frank and Carol, even more so by his father's sort of timid, demure attitude and his failure to stand up to his wife. There's a very pointed, obvious scene where he comes across his dad, who's wearing an apron and has dropped a tray of food. And yeah. he's like, why are you acting so feminine, father? I know. Mr. Howell, you've sunk so low. <laughs> You know, the issues are further complicated by Frank's interfering mother, who is very much a grand dame type. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. She's got the transatlantic accent, the brooch, the furs, the coist hair. I assumed that we were going to get more from her, but no, she's gone after the first couple of scenes. Yeah. yeah. Jim's frustrations are made manifest to Officer Ray Fremick when Jim is released to their custody. They have a heart-to-heart in uh, Ray's office where, like, Jim tries to take a swing at him, and Frank's like, you're not fooling me, kid. You yeah. want us to lock you up. Why? <laughs> and he punches the desk dramatically, breaks his the jeans, he actually broke his hand. Yes, he did. Oh. He had to wear a sling for a few days. That's acting for you. Judy, conversely, is convinced that her father ignores her because she is no longer a little girl, and he seems incredibly uncomfortable with her growing into a womanly form, and doesn't like that he's sexualizing her, and holy shit, there's a lot of subtext to that. Yeah, I don't know, I was like, are we really gonna talk about, I don't know, I mean, I feel like if that more of it was, like, shown the same way that they played out, I was like, is her father molesting her? Does she have, like, some sort of, I hate, I hate using the term daddy issues, but like, she's got some. Yeah, the argument that caused her to storm out and violate curfew is that she put on a dress for, like, an Easter event, and I guess... She put on lipstick. And lipstick, and her father just, like, rubbed it off her lips, and so the dress made her look like a tramp. Uh, yeah. Plato, on the other hand, was abandoned by his father when he was a toddler, and his mother is often away from home. She's currently in Hawaii when the movie starts, mm-hmm. leaving Plato in the care of his housekeeper. Yeah, honestly, that lady is the MVP. There's also a very pointed scene where uh, Jim recovers Judy's compact, and he also offers a shivering Plato his jacket, but Plato declines it. Yeah, I mean, like honestly, we can argue that James is a bisexual icon, and it is only exemplified, especially in this movie, where like basically he's maybe unintentionally romancing Plato, but like they have a cuddle puddle later. We'll get back to that. <laughs> More on that later. On the way to his first day at Dawson High, Jim bumps into Judy because they're pretty close neighbors, and he offers her a ride. Mm-hmm. 
Seemingly unimpressed by Jim, she declines and is instead picked up by her friends, a gang of delinquents led by Buzz Gunderson, her uh, beau of the moment. Yeah, I was like, ah, it's weird seeing a bunch of, uh, you know, 50s teenager delinquents who aren't played by 35-year-olds. <laughs> I kept assuring you that they weren't going to start singing or snapping their fingers. <laughs> Got finger snapping, yeah! <laughs> That's a bit later in a different Natalie Wood film. <laughs> Jim is shunned by the rest of the student body, but is befriended by Plato, who, in the synopsis I see, claims that he idolizes Jim as a father figure, which is sort of true, but we'll get back to that. Well, I mean, are we going to talk, well, it's like he wants him to be his daddy. I'm like, that has multiple meanings here. <laughs> After a field trip to the Griffith Observatory, Buzz provokes and challenges Jim to a knife fight. Jim defeats Buzz, but to preserve his status as the gang leader, Buzz suggests stealing some cars and having a chicky run at the seaside cliff. At home, Jim ambiguously asks his father for advice about defending one's honor and manhood in a dangerous situation. Well, dad's wearing an apron, so it's like, everybody got that? He's emasculated. But Frank advises him against confrontation of any kind. That night, during the chicky run, Buzz plunges to his death when the strap on his jacket sleeve becomes entangled with his door latch lever, preventing him from exiting the car in time. As the police approach, the gang flees, leaving Judy behind, but Jim patiently persuades her to leave with him and Plato. Sort of like gingerly offers his hand and she sort of gingerly yeah, I like accepts that. it. I like that moment. That like, was a nice moment. Yeah, I knew that someone was going to like fall off the cliff or something. I mean, this kind of leads into like my next thing. I thought that this movie took place over a longer period of time than it did for some reason. Nope, it's just a day. Yeah. I think it lends more credence to the adolescent impulsiveness that informs every decision made in this film, even by the adults. Jim later confides to his parents his involvement in the crash and considers turning himself in, which his parents are very much against, with Carol declaring that they are moving again in order to escape this. Jim protests and pleads with Frank to stand up for him, but when Frank refuses, Jim attacks him in frustration and then storms off to the police station to confess. However, he is turned away by the desk sergeant who is in the middle of paperwork and is not taking him seriously. Uh, He is spotted there by the surviving members of the gang who assume that he is turning snitch. Jim drives back home and finds Judy waiting for him. She apologizes for her prior treatment of him due to peer pressure and, uh, well, the two begin to be a a bit more overtly hormonal to each other. The one thing that I liked, and I even wonder if this was improvised, is when he puts a cigarette in his mouth and he, like, puts it in the wrong end and she, like... He takes it out of his mouth, turns around, and pops it back in there. Yeah, the filter goes there. Yeah. I was like, that's very flirty. Agreeing that they will never return to their respective homes, Jim suggests that they visit an old deserted mansion that Plato had told him about earlier in the day. Meanwhile, Plato is intercepted by the three members of Buzz's gang. They steal Plato's address book, and they go off after Jim. Plato had surreptitiously written down Jim's address. Big romantic person. He gets a whole page. (laughs) Frightened for Jim's safety, Plato retrieves his mother's gun and leaves to warn Jim and Judy, ultimately finding them at the mansion. The three new friends act out a fantasy as a family at that point, but then Plato falls asleep by the swimming pool. Jim and Judy leave to explore the mansion and each other's bodies. When they share their first kiss, Buzz's gang finds and wakes up Plato, who, frightened and distraught, shoots and wounds one of them. When Jim returns, he attempts to restrain Plato, but he flees, accusing Jim of uh, leaving him behind. 
Plato runs to the observatory and barricades himself inside as more police converge, including Fremick, who is with Frank and Carol. Jim and Judy follow Plato into the observatory, the police are not terribly observant, where Jim persuades Plato to trade his gun for his red jacket because Plato's shivering again. Eh? Eh? Yep, yep. <laughs> everything comes back. Jim quietly removes the ammunition before returning the gun and then convinces Plato to come inside. But when the police suddenly notice that Plato still has the gun, they shoot him down as he charges them, unaware that Jim had removed the bullets. Frank comforts his grieving son, vowing to be a stronger father figure. Now reconciled to his parents, Jim introduces them to Judy, and the film ends as Plato's body is being loaded onto the yeah, ambulance. I mean, it was really sad and touching. Like, Judy puts his shoe back on his foot, Jim zips up his jacket, and an unnamed nurse puts, like, a necklace, maybe a crucifix or something, on him. Alright, for the development of this film, uh, in the late 1940s, Warner Brothers bought the film rights to Robert M. Lindner's nonfiction psychology book, Rebel Without a Cause, The Hypnoanalysis of a Criminal Psychopath. This is about him using hypnotherapy on a convicted murderer. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have much to do with this film. But it has a cool title, so we're going to steal that. Yup. A number of treatments were drafted without a full script being produced. Marlon Brando did a screen test in 1947 using one of these fragments. Dr. Seuss wrote one of these fragments. I'm not sure if it's the Brando one. Brando eventually turned it down to star in A Streetcar Named Desire, which, you know, that worked out for him. Did Dr. Seuss write it in verse? <laughs> yes, we almost got a rebel without a cause and anapestic tetrameter. <laughs> yeah, you just had to show off right there with that. <laughs> After buying a Nicholas Ray treatment entitled The Blind Run, Warner Brothers asked Ray to flesh it out into a full screenplay using the Lindner title. Stuart Stern wrote the full script, and he later claimed that he had never even seen Ray's treatment and he was angered that Ray got story credit. Stern did, however, concede that Ray and Irving Shulman contributed to the writing process overall. A couple of people auditioned for the role of Jim Stark, most notably Paul Newman. Yep, I've seen um, some gifts of like a screen test with both Paul Newman and James Dean, and they're just like flirting and giggling with each other the whole time. And this is the perfect time for me to say that Earthy Kit had a threesome with Paul Newman and James Dean in her dance studio, and my God, am I not jealous of her. That is a hot threesome. Yeah, that is. Arguably, Eartha Kit's the least cute member of that threesome. Hey, Eartha Kit is a babe, though. I mean, like, you know what? This is the perfect time to say good for her. She described it saying that She's like, those boys brought me to, like, such heavenly pleasures I had thought impossible. Yeah, that's something she'd say. Yes. So, uh, there, right, there you go. Fact for you. Once James Dean was cast in the lead, Ray took a concerted effort to get to know him more closely. Ray visited Dean's New York stamping grounds, met all of his friends, and got drunk with him a few times. Aww. <laughs> Rebel Without a Cause was greenlit under the assumption that it would be a teensploitation film in the same vein as the flood of low-budget knockoffs of The Wild One, which had come out in 1953. However, when East of Eden came out and established James Dean as a rising star, Warner Brothers started putting more money into the film. Uh, Ray was encouraged to down play the more lowbrow elements of earlier script drafts and to indulge in his desire to turn Rebel Without a Cause into a modern Shakespearean tragedy. Elements such as that very pointed planetarium lecture where mm -hmm. the whims of man stand in stark insignificant contrast to the ever-expanding scope of the universe. Yeah, yeah not subtle. Mm -hmm. 
Rebel also got enough of a budget to shoot in color. However, they had already shot a couple of scenes, including some at the planetarium, so they had to shoot them all over again. Furthermore, Dean was dressed a bit more nerdy in uh, these earlier scenes. He had horn-rimmed glasses and a brown jacket. And then one day when he came in with that iconic red jacket, there's like, no, that's the one. And also, you're too handsome to wear glasses. We need people to know that you're cute. I mean, he had those big blue eyes. Margaret O'Brien tested for Judy, but Ray felt that her answers to probing characterization questions were too pat. Warner Brothers pushed Ray to audition Jane Mansfield. That would have been interesting. Yeah, Ray hated her line reading and didn't even bother to film them. He referred to her performance as a hallucination. <laughs> Debbie Reynolds was also considered for a bit. She Natalie Wood was, for most of the process, considered a dark horse candidate because of her age. She was 16, which was also the age of her character, but everyone else was a little older than what they were supposed to be. He's so many, I was like, what, 19 or so? Yeah, he's about 19. James he's 14 in this movie, though. Yeah, you called him a tiny little peanut. Yeah, he is. Little peanut. Yeah, Dean was all of 24, and he was the oldest one there, I think. I know, alas. Ray also considered her to be too goody-goody to play Judy, who is, you know, supposed to be something of a bad girl. Mm -hmm. She's like a good bad girl. During the casting process, Wood got into a car accident with her friends. Ray rushed to the hospital, and while there, overheard a physician refer to Wood as a goddamn juvenile delinquent. Mm -hmm. Wood then yelled to Ray, Nick, he called me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. Now do I get the part? <laughs> Still, they wanted to age her up a little bit, so Natalie Wood is very pointedly given a mature woman's hairstyle and makeup to make her appear older. Yeah, she's got the same hairstyle as Carol. Yeah, she does. Uh, Wood described Rebel as the first script she read that she actually wanted to do and not just something that her stage parents were pushing her into. Shooting lasted from March 28th to May 26th in 1955. Locations included Santa Monica High School and the William O. Jenkins House, which had been used for Sunset Boulevard in 1950. The building was demolished a couple of months later. The Chicky Run was staged at a Warner Brothers property in Calabasas. The Cliff, however, was, was a constructed set on Stage 7 of, at the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank. There was a water tank, but editors still had to mat in shots of the Pacific Ocean in post. Yeah, they were definitely, you know, driving the so for sure. <laughs> James Dean's approach to method acting entranced Ray, who was the first method actor that Ray had worked with on that level, and he encouraged everyone to improvise dialogue. Many on set claimed that Dean coached and encouraged the actors more than Ray did, and that he really deserved a director's credit. <laughs> the opening scene with Stark playing with the toy monkey was improvised by Dean after a 24-hour workday. It was one of a number of innumerable takes where Dean went on without a script and said, you just wanted to try something. <laughs> At Dean's insistence, the knife fight involved actual blades. Ooh. Dean was nicked several times, and when he got stabbed in the ear, Ray called cut when he noticed a stream of blood. Dean then angrily berated Ray for cutting a scene while he was having a real moment. That being said, whenever I hear about method actors, it's always horror stories about them just being insufferable dickheads to everyone else on set. And uh, apparently Dean wasn't like that. Everyone loved him. At least they felt the need to say so because he died tragically a couple of months after this movie was finished being made. But uh, Dean, Natalie Wood, Salmoneo, and Nick Adams grew very close over the course of the shoot. Who did um, Nick Adams play? Uh, another one of the street cops. Oh, okay. cool. On the day of Plato's death scene, Dean was worried that Maneo was too sensitive to handle it on his own and, like, never left his sight. Aww, that's sweet. 
On a less sweet note, Ray, who was 43 at the time of filming, began an onset affair with the 16-year-old Natalie Wood. I know. I mean, this is a great time to remind everybody that Natalie Wood was sexually assaulted by none other Kirk Douglas. Like, he gets away with it because he got to be an old, like, you know, Hollywood elder statesman, but... Her sister, uh, Lana Wood, confirms the story. So it's just another record of Natalie Wood being treated like crap by the men in her life. Yeah, they continued the affair for some time, but broke it off a couple of months after the film ended because Natalie Wood almost got pregnant and Ray got scared. <sighs> well, you know what? You're going to fuck a 16-year-old. You better be wearing a goddamn condom. Nicholas Ray is just a messed up dude in general. Roughly around this time, he got divorced because his 30-something-year-old wife was sleeping with his 12-year-old son. Gross. Yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff going on there. Yeah, lots of, lots of shit stuff going on in this movie to all the actors in it. I mean, rest in peace, Natalie Wood and James Dean. And Salmoneo. And Salmoneo. He also died very tragically young. Also, Ray was sleeping with Salmoneo. Well, at least he wasn't a minor. Still, gross. He was 19. That's still gross. Yeah. Dennis Hopper, who was also sleeping with Wood at the time, began accosting Ray on set over the matter. They apparently came to blows when Hopper called Ray a sexual predator who was taking advantage of a child. Most good for Dennis Hopper there. Most consider this the main reason why Hopper's part was cut to shreds. I didn't realize that Dennis Hopper was in this until I was reading your notes. I I remember him as a crazy bomber and like, baby wants blue velvet or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, we're used to Dennis Hopper being considerably older. And and crazier. Yeah, up up until Rebel, like the youngest I'd ever seen him was Easy Rider. Ray wanted to fire Hopper, but Warner Brothers wouldn't let him. Filming in color meant that Rebel Without a Cause had almost no budget for extras, but Ray did cast actual gang members for the few incidental characters he could get. This led to some on-set altercations because he hired extras from rival gangs. (laughs) Frank Mazzola, who played Crunch, gave everyone tips on gang attitudes and mannerisms. Ray Stern, Dean, and Mineo all wanted Plato to be gay and constructed the film to imply this while dancing around the Hayes Code restrictions. By the standards of, like, the 50s, it's, like, very obvious. Yes, yeah, so there are a number of scenes where Plato has adoring glances at Jim. Big eyes at and there are double entendres seated throughout, particularly in the mansion scene. Dean wanted Jim and Plato to kiss, but this was shot down real hard by Warner Brothers. If there was footage, it was lost. Oh, boo. Mineo's character was named Plato in order to evince queerness. Yeah, I was like, hmm, yeah, it was Plato, man. All right, I don't know what that means. Is that what they're calling it these days? The architect of the most homoerotic form of fascism. <laughs> Plato's Locker features a pinup of Alan Ladd, and they picked Ladd not only because he was a leading Hollywood sex symbol of the period, but also because he was 5'6", fairly short for leading men of the day, and also Mineo was also 5'6", so he wanted a short king. Yeah, short king's for life. Rebel Without a Cause was released a month after Dean's sudden death. It grossed $4.5 million off of a $1.5 million budget, making it one of the top earners of Warner Brothers' fiscal year. It got mixed reviews upon its release. Most contemporary reviews praised the acting. Even the critics who panned the film liked Dean's performance in it. Uh, it's pretty mo- dark for a movie of this time. Yeah, you were surprised that it covered as many heavy themes as yeah. candidly as the Hayes Code allowed it to. Yeah. 
Criticisms focused mostly on the movie's violence, which some saw as gratuitous. Others felt that the storytelling was melodramatic, which seems a little silly to me. It's a melodrama. Mm -hmm. That's like complaining about the Western having too many gunfights. Too many horses. Get rid of them. Yeah, too many horses. Remove at least two. I am not a crackpot. <laughs> uh, it was also said that the gang members were one-note stereotypes. You can definitely argue with that because they so very closely are like, I don't like that guy. Go beat him up. Uh, yeah. He mooed at the planetarium. He mooed. It's time for a pissing contest. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, I mean, I could relate to that scene because my eighth grade class, we went to Syracuse to see a production of the Diary of Anne Frank as a stage play, and we got in trouble because during all of like the really emotional moments, we cheered and clapped and booed. So, uh, you know, apparently that was not allowed to the fuck pot director. He got mad that we all cheered when Anne and Peter pissed. Sal Mineo and Natalie Wood got Oscar nods in the supporting categories, while Ray got a writing nomination, even though certain parties think that he shouldn't have. <laughs> Mineo lost to Jack Lemon for Mr. Roberts, Wood lost to Joe Van Fleet for East of Eden, and Ray lost to David Fuchs for Love Me or Leave Me. Didn't Dean get nominated for East of Eden? Uh, you know, I should have looked over that I more think closely. So. I was like reading his Wikipedia page. Uh, I think he did. He's like one of the first actors to get nominated posthumously. Yeah, for the legacy of this film, it's an extended one. We already covered a couple of them. Mm -hmm. But uh, James Dean has become a shorthand for rebellious teenage cool. Up until the present day, pop stars who were born like 50, 60 years after this movie came out have continued to reference him. Dean's name pops up in songs by Billy Joel, Madonna, Taylor Swift, Adam Lambert, Don McLean, Lana Del Rey, The Killers, Halsey. Ex-Ambassadors, Beyonce, Lady Gaga, and Ariana Grande. Uh, Bruce Grande. Grande. I, I keep forgetting the A. <laughs> yeah. That's how closely my fingers are to the pulse of yeah, the pop I mean, community. I, I like Lana Del Rey. James Day. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad Lana Del Rey. Yeah, uh, Bruce Springsteen and The Replacements directly reference Rebel Without a Cause and Cadillac Ranch and I'll Be You, respectively. Replacements are more my jam. Paula Abdul's 1991 music video for Rush Rush is a loose remake of Rebel Without a Cause, where they just flat out do certain scenes again. Abdul plays the Judy role, or baby Keanu Reeves is Jim. Wait, I want to see this. It's on YouTube. Right, Look it well, up. I know what I'm going to do after we're done recording. <laughs> Rachel already mentioned the Tommy Wiseau lifts you're tearing me apart know, from the yeah, room. Like, I mean, I knew about this. Like, I read Greg Sestero's book, The Disaster Artist, an excellent read, by the way. Even if you aren't, like, a fan of the room. But he's just like, he wanted this to be his James Dean moment. Because early on in their friendship, Greg Sestero and, you know, Tommy Wiseau both idolized James Dean. They took, he's, like, the ideal actor. So they go on a road trip to, you know, his um, the accident site where he died and, like, pay their respects. It's just kind of funny, like, just how much Tommy Wiseau really thought that he was acting when you were tearing me apart, Lisa. <laughs> Rebel Without a Cause plays in the background in scenes from La La Land and the a first season episode of Riverdale, which, you know, that feels appropriate. Riverdale is also intensely melodramatic, but not in a way that I can get on board with. It's, uh, yeah, it's it a is, little too CW There for me. is a really good video about Riverdale that my boyfriend and Bestie got me to watch. It talks about, like, what is it? The Entertainment Valley. It's sort of like the show is too bad to be entertaining to watch. 
and then you want it to hit the entertainment valley, like a show that's really, really good, you want to watch it, but a show that's just mediocre, can't interest you, but a show that's really, really bad, it's so bad, it's entertaining, and he argues that season two on of Riverdale, it hits that, because that show was whack. I mean, I encountered a lot of people, people my age, people younger than me, who think Riverdale is a jam, so I, I don't know, maybe I just don't get the kids anymore. I mean, I know a bunch of 12-year-olds who were watching it, and then after I watched that video, I'm like, do your parents know what you're watching? Not like they advocate for, like, parents censoring their kids' consumption, but Jesus Christ, that show is whack. <laughs> In terms of animation, Fry's outfit in Futurama is very pointedly modeled after the Game Star Trek jacket. I didn't even jacket. realize that. I just thought they were like, eh, Fry's got a red jacket. He shows up. Makes it easy for, you know, Bender and Leela to find him. Well, I mean, that is true, and it does help Fry stand out, especially in crowd scenes. Might have been why Jim was wearing the jacket. I mean, I thought that, I mean, when it comes to Fry, I know he's named after Phil Hartman, so... And, uh, as Rachel already mentioned, the planetarium from Rebel Without a Cause is recreated in other famous death scenes of BoJack Horseman. Yeah, I like that. That Okay, I'm not to spoil for BoJack Horseman, but that ruined me for, like, a week. I binged a lot of BoJack Horseman, but there's certain episodes where I had to stop, and that was one of them. Okay, you know, Time's Arrow, the episode from Beatrice's point of view, I watched that at the gym. Oh. I was, like, on the treadmill going, like, <laughs> oh, no. But it was so, it sucked me in, so I couldn't stop watching it. But don't, don't watch BoJack Horseman at the gym. Watch, like... The Office or something. Alright, let's break down the cast. First and foremost, James Dean is Jim Stark. First move is actually seen him in all the way, not that, you know, he's sort of like John Cavazzale, you know, because he talked about, um, what's that known? The Godfather, mm -hmm. about being a really good actor who has incredibly small filmography. Dean is only in two other movies, and they're both period pieces. I do think that a lot of the romance around Dean as this generation-spanning icon that even 22-year-olds now are throwing into pop songs is due to his tragically young death that mm -hmm. throws a lot of mythology around him. But he's still a very accomplished actor, and he did exist at a very transformative period in pop culture. A lot of things shifted, and he was the hand at the wheel turning a lot of those shifts. It really would have been interesting to see what he would have done in, like, New Hollywood of the 70s. Yeah, he I would have only been in his 40s. Yeah, I think he would have felt a lot more at home and certain other things if he fell into, like, Martin Scorsese or George Lucas's radar. I know. God, James Dean is Tom Solo. Yeah, I think, though, is that he had a very naturalistic acting style versus, like, some of the other people in it who are performing. Not that there's anything wrong with performing, but he is acting. Yeah, when you got a method guy who is standing next to a performer, they do underline each other's contrast. He's got Mr. Howell as his dad. See, I grew up watching Gilligan's Island. I have yet to make Ryan do an episode on Gilligan's Island, but if you want me to, please say so in the comments. <laughs> Moving right along, we have <laughs> Natalie Wood as Judy. Natalie Wood's so good. I mean, I've seen her in like a lot of other things. In In Rebel Without a Cause, she's she gets a tearful monologue when we're less than five minutes in. We haven't really gotten to know this character yet, and she still has to sell that part. Yeah, she which she does. Yeah, and it tells you exactly what kind of movie you're in for, mm -hmm. just the way that she phrases it and all of that innuendo about her relationship with her dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for Natalie Wood, just in general. I know. 
And uh, well, now we have Salmoneo as Plato, who also died tragically young. He was an actual queer person who went most of his life not getting to actually be fully who he was. What, ha- what happened? He died in a knife fight when he was in his 40s. Oh, fuck that. Some people say that he was bisexual, but uh, a lot of people insist that that woman that he cohabitated with was a beard. Yeah, but you know what, though? People love bisexual erasure. So, I mean, just look at how people talk about, like, Marlon Brando versus Freddie Mercury. While Dean is the... He's got cuffed pants. Yeah, he... <laughs> yeah, Dean's the main character in this film, but I think most of the heavy lifting in terms of character is, has to be done by Plato. Oh, yeah. He, is, he has a lot of facial acting and, like, body language stuff to get across his character's queerness. You know, if, if he, I don't know, had been played by somebody who was not willing to do that, I feel like he would have been an incredibly flat character. And based on most of the commentaries, everyone was super into it. In fact, that they were giggling to each other because they were kind of getting away with something. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very explicit for the time period. Like, he's got he's got Alan Ladd in there. It's not quite like a sexual picture, but he has a picture of another man in his locker. Well, when he was inviting Jim to, you know, hang out with the mansion after Buzz died. and All alone? Yeah. <laughs> we, could, we could talk and maybe make out about it a little bit. Yeah. So it, it always is really interesting to me how to get around the censors. There are just so many moments where if you intimate something, it's a lot more intense than if you just flat out did it. Like, if that cuddle puddle turned into a three-way, it probably would have been less explicit. Was. I know, it's like it basically was. Like, <laughs> come on. I know, it would have been nice for all three of them to, you know, ride off into the sunset together, you know. But it's not that kind of movie. It's not that kind of movie. And it's 1955, so if there's a sympathetic queer character, they have to die. I mean, honestly, if you watch Seeing in the Rain and are like, uh, John Kathy and Cosmo are a polycule, you know, your interpretation is pretty valid. And that was in 1952. <laughs> All right, then we have Jim Bacchus as Frank Stark, where, you know, when the credits were rolling, Rachel's like, oh, it's... Mr. Howell! And, but technically, you know, he's also Mr. Magoo, and like, you said that at one point, James Dean does the Mr. Magoo. Marcus taught Dean how to do the yeah. the, the, the the Magoo voice, yeah. and there's a part where, where Dean is like, drown like puppies. Yeah, I mean, I honestly was expecting him to be like, oh, yeah, man. That's like, you know, how he talks, you know, the transatlantic accent, and he's like, I mean, I have seen him in other things. He basically plays, like, a slightly inebriated version of Mr. Howell in It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. I know, I think it's called Angel Face, but this movie with, oh, God, the, the knuckle tats guy from um, Night of the Hunter. Oh, that's going to drive me nuts. Yeah, I know. He's Robert Mitchum. Oh, okay, Robert yeah. Mitchum. There's a movie he's in with Robert Mitchum, and it involves, like, a crime. It has, like, a downer ending for something that was made in, like, the late 40s, early 50s, but he plays a prosecutor in that very seriously. Not only until my mom was like, hey, look, it's Mr. Howell, because I watched a lot of, you know, Turner Classics movies as a child. <laughs> yeah, this is the only movie I've seen where Bacchus is playing a, a more serious role. He's mostly a live-action cartoon character or a literal cartoon character yeah. than the other stuff I know mm-hmm. him from. I think that he sells the character very well. Yeah, he's endearing and, like, you feel like the 
love that he has for Jim and also like the frustrations that Jim has with him because he is kind of a weak guy. I mean, sure, there's also some sexism in there of what happened. Oh, you know, he, he gets emasculated by his wife and his mother and Jim tells the cop that he wishes that his father would pop his mother, you know? And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of the more emotive scenes for me is just, like, Frank and Jim looking at each other, and Frank very much wants to say the right thing to Jim, and he doesn't know what it is. And you can just see Bacchus evincing this search, this probe, and his, oh, God, I'm Johnny on the spot. What do I do? What do I do? Yeah, I mean, I can kind of, like, get that, that it's sort of like, oh, if you're a parent to a teenager, I'm sure both of us probably have moments where you're trying to explain something to your parents, and maybe you're not using words you want to but they just don't get what you're trying to say that's very relatable like even now well Bacchus had never worked with a method actor before and the scene where uh, Dean tackles him over the sofa took him by surprise oh shit yeah oh my god yeah I mean it's always interesting when like actors like do that I'm like I know for um oh god like one thing in Game of Thrones at one point Lena Headey as Cersei shoved Peter Dinklage and he was wasn't expecting it but he was like yeah that was a good move but she like full on like Phew. and sometimes it doesn't work like I've been in a, a show where the stage shove accidentally hurt and uh, somebody tipped over <laughs> yeah you're right that rebel without a cause seems to be like straddling this line between the more naturalistic method derived acting of like the new Hollywood era and the more stagey performative acting from you know uh, early cinema history because you, know, you do get those bits with Dean and the other teenagers where they're just sort of riffing and ad-libbing and adding lines and saying stuff in ways that they actually say to their real-life friends. And then you get all these moments that feel very movie, especially like uh, the part that came out to me was like in the end scene where Mr. and Mrs. Stark are just looking at each other and they just sort of smile. Yeah, knowingly. that felt very movie. Yeah, yeah. It was like, is this the last beat of a sitcom episode? Where the hell did that come from? That kid just died. Yeah, the cop like, shot him. I know. Um, cab, but it also like turned into a leave it to beaver episode <laughs> it's like oh there goes our boy jim he's getting in trouble again <laughs> pick a lane movie yeah, you know but at least it's not like jarring or anything i mean it is kind of funny seeing like you know jim back is in like a serious movie it's kind of like reverse on that when we watch god what sci-fi movie with leslie nielsen oh forbidden planet forbidden planet and i'm like why isn't he funny why doesn't he have white hair <laughs> you know all right, themes. Uh, first thing I wrote down was masculinity. Oh, because, yeah. duh. Rebel Without a Cause and James Dean's stardom in general is frequently argued as a sea change in how American pop culture defined male beauty standards. Dean wasn't the only boyish, baby-faced figure of the era to be sold as a sex symbol. He's probably not even the most culturally impacting. Who's the other one, you would say? Elvis. Yep. And yeah, the tough, imposing, stoic, and rough-around-the-edges archetype didn't go anywhere. Hollywood would be using Sean Connery's chest hair to sell James Bond movies less than 10 years after <laughs> Rebel came out. So trying to reduce history into convenient narratives will result in spillover. Still, it's inarguable that Dean being marketed as a masculine ideal he was a cried multiple times, real tears. 
And there's, yeah, there's a scene where, like, Natalie Wood's mouth is just hovering over him where she's talking about, I fell in love with you, person I just met yesterday. Yeah. Because you're sensitive, and I can be honest around you, and you care. You'll be there for me. Like, there's a meme going around because uh, in the current moment at this time of recording, like, God, what's uh, Pete Davidson is dating, like, the string of, like, very hot, desirable Hollywood Yeah, I know, symbols. like, uh, Kanye West wants to kill him now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, people are just like, why is this goony dude going out with like Cindy Crawford's daughter? And uh, one of the memes going around is like, hey, maybe Pete Davidson just texts back real fast. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I'm not going to be crude and make any speculative jokes about, you know, Pete Davidson's private life. But you know what? I bet he makes them laugh. Right. Maybe he does text back fast. But I think it comes down to he, he makes them laugh. There's something, you know. Just being emotionally available, that's hot. I know, right? And he does kind of, he has that the tragic backstory, that, that little puppy dog face. I don't think he's attractive. I, I would not want to date him. I also would not want to date a guy who's 13 years younger than me. I mean, at this point, considering how old I am, that would be illegal. <laughs> but you know what? It definitely comes down to like emotional availability and that he makes people laugh. That goes pretty far in a relationship. Yeah, after Dean broke out, a moody, sensitive old soul with piercing eyes was something that would sell to mainstream America in Boise. Yeah, I keep thinking over this line I, I, I read in Kyle Baker's Why I Hate Saturn, where one of the characters goes, John Wayne is dead and buried, but James Dean is relevant as ever. Yeah, I mean, it is always really interesting to me to watch anything that has a predominantly male cast, because even if you don't intend it, it always ends up turning into a study of masculinity. Like when we were talking about The Godfather, sort of like, you know, Fredo's failure, Donnie's anger, you know, Tom's self-control and Michael's slow decline. Um, You know, same thing if you watch, I think another movie that's a great study of masculinity is Reservoir Dogs. There's no woman of actual consequence in that movie. It's all men. Men arguing with other men, caring for each other. Like, I think the scene that's like the most tenderest moment in that movie is when Mr. White calms Mr. Orange's hair while he's comforting him. He whispers something like in his ear to make him laugh. And he's like, you know, hold me. You know. Say the goddamn word. Yeah, it's not going to be okay. He starts singing okay, it to him. Mary. <laughs> Now, the next thing I wanted to bring up was the emergence of the teenager, not only as a marketing demo, but also just as a term. Mm-hmm. Because not too long ago, you were a child and then you were an adult. Like, that was how society perceived you. And that shifted in the mid-20th century, which was not that long ago. No. Just living memory. Yep. Teenager didn't really enter the popular lexicon until 1944. From the start, the term was connected to marketing. It reflected that adolescents suddenly had a lot more spending power in post-war America than earlier generations had in earlier eras. Ah, capitalism. Yeah, it just seeds into everything. The 1950s was the first time when consumer products were explicitly targeted to those between the ages of 16 and 25. It took a while to take a firm grip. The example I wrote down was, you know, getting back to Elvis. He was first pushed as a singles artist since it was assumed that teens didn't have enough disposable income for a whole album. LPs were seen as a medium for adult contemporary artists like Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole and Judy Garland and so on. And that didn't really change until the 
the Beatles. They were the first teeny bopper act who consciously focus on albums. And so, you know, the, it existed in the 50s, but it was still evolving. And it can take a while for these idioms to catch on. For instance, the term tween. Yeah, um, there's actually an interesting book called Cinderella Ate My Daughter by Peggy Orenstein, where she talks about, like, a lot of, like, basically conspicuous consumption of things for, like, kids. And one thing that she talks about is, especially what aims at girls, girls getting older younger. So, like, the teenager, like, makeup marketed towards girls, like, under 13. So, like, once you kind of hit 10, you know, looking down the, the barrel at you. So... I think that tween is definitely like a market for sure. I mean, it's definitely a looking forward to things market. Mm -hmm. When I was that age, he said yelling at the cloud. When I was like nine or 10, all the TV shows that were marketed to nine or 10 year olds starred kids who were slightly older than I was, like 13 to 16 Mm -hmm. year olds. And I think that was very consciously done because, you know, you're just kind of like, you you can't wait to do all that cool stuff. Yeah, when I started watching Avatar, some of the kids on there were older than I was. Now I'm like, look at those children. Like, literally, a bunch of, like, college students came into my job, and I was just like, college students, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're And I'm like, but God, you guys look like babies. I'm like, yeah, sure, I know I'm staring down 30 over here, but like, wow, you guys look so little. Did I look that little when I was in college? Like, what, what's happening here? <laughs> oh, I remember being, like, 18 and about to graduate from high school and looking at the freshmen who were, like, 14 or 15, and I was like, oh, my God, they're, they're, they're little kids. Look Look at how innocent they are, how naive, unlike myself, the 18-year-olds. I know, oh my god. Yeah, um, talking about, like, casting decisions, it is always, I think, better to cast, like, at the right age, which I understand why they can't, because of rules about minors, but, like, there is a marketed and notable difference between James Dean, who's the crusty old age of 24, as old as he was unfortunately going to get, versus, like, Natalie Wood and Salmenio, who were the same age as their characters. Like, um, there was this TV show called A Teacher, and it's an exploration of a relationship, quote-unquote, between a 16-year-old boy and his adult teacher. And because of, like, rules and stuff, the kid who's playing the student, he's with a 25-year-old actor because also it jumps ahead into the future so of course he has to be able to play you know 10 years in the future right but then the very last episode they have his younger brothers come out who are all played by actors who would have been like that actual age and it's supposed to kind of jolt the audience a bit to be like look he really was super young when this was happening like we can get away with like some of the stuff because we need to have an adult actor playing a teenager yeah a lot of the standards of these sorts of things are pretty arbitrary like i remember when i was between the ages of like 9 and 15 i never heard the term tween i thought that that was a very super recent thing like introduced in the 2010s maybe and that's when it caught on but kids like, getting older younger yeah the, the first use of it according to etymologists was in 1919 damn yeah so it took a while uh, next thing i wanted to bring up was queer coding because oh boy yeah Yeah, this is kind of like Exhibit A in that. Uh, We have talked about queer coding in previous episodes, but largely in stuff like The Invisible Man, where that was villainous characters and giving them queer traits in order to distinguish them from the tough, barrel-chested, traditionally masculine protagonist. Mm -hmm. This is a bit different. Yeah, it's right in your face from, like, the get-go. 
Plato is this troubled kid who's been abandoned by his parents and he's seeking substitutes and maybe a daddy that I can kiss. And the audience <laughs> is supposed to sympathize with him despite the fact that he shot puppies with a gun and that's how we're introduced to him. Yeah, like that's a death sentence in most other movies. Plato is pretty different from the cackling dandies we find in other films from this period like the Maltese Falcon or Strangers on a Train. And Salmoneo's Plato is arguably the first gay character portrayal to get an Oscar nomination, if you want to, you know, squint a bit. Getting back to a point I raised earlier, because Plato is meant to be a queer character. He can't the, have a happy ending. Yeah, cultural dictates of the day means that he's this twisted, psychologically non-functioning mess that either needs to reform and find Jesus or needs to be killed before the third act ends. And Rebel Without a Cause chooses to kill him. I think, though, is that it is portrayed, though, as a tragedy versus like, oh, yeah, well, we have to kill the freak now. Oh, uh, I mean, if Sylvan was on board for this, yeah, he would probably then seg into framing queerness as tragedy porn for the straights in the audience. Like, even yeah. if you go into it with good intentions, that's going to be an undercurrent with it. Because even now, in the modern day of 2022... Your gaze is still a problem. Yeah, it's still a struggle to tell queer stories of joy in any kind of mainstream-leaning film or television program. So, you know, Rebel Without a Cause was a while ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Go. No, within the living memory. And the last subject I wrote down was getting back to the film canon in my introduction. While putting my notes together for this, I rewatched uh, some video essays by Lindsay Ellis and Zoe B, where they talked about what qualifies a work for the literary canon. Common metrics include popular appeal, critical acclaim, impact on later works, and lionizing by academic elites. Of course, all of those are nebulous indicators at best, and none of them mean that the work is going to persist indefinitely in the public imagination. Which brings back the question of should there even be a film canon? Ellis concludes her essay with a call to include more women and people of color in the literary canon. B, on the other hand, who used to be an English teacher, uh, is less inclined to maintain the current structure of the canon, except with a subsection for like Maya Angelou or Alice Walker. She considers that sort of a ghettoization. Uh, she instead calls for a literary spider web, as she calls it, where we look at how public perceptions of great literature have affected what gets published and how it's sold to us. Uh, B adds that how we read something can often be more interesting than what we're reading because you know a really basic ass summation of war and peace is probably less interesting to listen to than something that she brought up which was a marxist read on vanna speaks the 1987 memoir by vanna white of wheel of fortune fame yeah like i'm currently rereading madame bovary and i'm kind of reading it with like a feminist lens a because i think that there can be one and b it would piss off gustav little there. Vanna Speaks was definitely not intended to be a capitalist critique. <laughs> uh, it was one of those quickly churned out celebrity tell-all slash self-help books where a B-list or a C-list famous person has an interview with a real writer where they then take the footage and just like hammer together into a book. Just about anybody who has a reality show has put out one of those, the most infamous probably being Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal. And the fact that these books exist and that there's a market for them, this can say a lot of things about who we are. And, you know, another meme I saw recently was, uh, eh, capitalism breeds innovation. And then a picture of Aunt Jemima that is Fruity Pebbles flavored. <laughs> and you're like, nobody asked for that. <laughs> 
gross. Why would you make that? Uh, I mean, I had uh, purple ketchup as a child. Yeah, we live in a world where a photogenic game show sidekick is approached by a major publisher to put ink on paper about becoming, as the ad copy reads, beautiful in mind, spirit, and body. And I'm not trying to, like, trash Vanna White for putting out a memoir, but, like, how many people who watch Wheel of Fortune would actually want to read that book? Who, besides Vanna White's media family, would be interested in her life story to that level? Yes, so. But that book exists, and it's at a flea market right now. Martians are going to find it in the landfill 10,000 years after the human race is wiped out. <laughs> That's going to be our legacy. Vanna speaks. So yeah, Rebel Without a Cause is in the film canon, and I would argue that it deserves its place. It's pretty important in terms of the evolution of 20th century art, if that thing matters to you. And there's a lot of, in the movie, subtext, and its existence can tell us volumes about the times that produced it. And uh, that is also true for something like Troll 2 or the My Little Pony movie. Both of those we have covered on this show. <laughs> so yeah, I'm on board with the spider web theory. I have an English degree, huh? And, like, honestly, I took so many classes with some of the spider reading was such bullshit. And I'm like, this is, I know it's part of a literary canon, but, like, I want to read this. I want to read Vanna Speaks. Yeah, I want to yeah, read Vanna Speaks. I don't want to read Heart of Darkness. I certainly don't want to read 1984. Like, I tried reading it, and I was like, mm, uh, too much misogyny for me. Bye. Our next episode, The John Hurt 1984. Join us then. <laughs> Duck takes you to the chair. Um... <laughs> I really enjoyed Rebel Without a Cause. I have newfound respect for James Dean because, like, you know, pop cultural osmosis. Of course I know who he is. I but mean, now you've seen him in something. I've seen him, and he did really what he could have done, you know, through, like, the rest of the 50s into the 60s and 70s. I think he probably would have fit in pretty well. And you want to watch his three-way with Arthur Kitt and Paul Newman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Selman Ao gets to watch. Yeah. Nicholas Ray doesn't. No, he's not. Oh, yeah. But, uh, no, I really liked it. I can understand why it's so important, why it is also endlessly parody. Oh, yeah. The, the drag racing off the bluff, the knife fight, all that stuff just keeps coming up again and again. And you're like, <laughs> okay, now I've seen the patient zero for these tropes. Yeah, but I've seen the meme in its natural habitat. I mean, that's what we talked about when we watched The Godfather. <laughs> Well, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything you'd like to um, add? Everything on your end? Yeah, I think so. I'm just thinking of Brokeback Mountain as like the first widely accepted gay cowboy romance movie, and just that, yeah, it kind of does turn into tragedy porn near the end, but I feel like it isn't as sort of like exploitative as some other, you know, examples. And I do think that you have to be able to sell to tell sad stories, ones that aren't like cute. Because I just think of like Fun Home by Alison Bechdel. That's going to get turned into a movie. That sort of like, you know, what happens to her father versus Alison's own queerness. Like that is a tragedy. To um, paraphrase the Bechdel test, the problem isn't that there are queer stories that end in tragedy. The problem is that almost every queer story ends in tragedy. Yeah, the bar is like to the ground. <laughs> well, if that's it, yep. thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time. Not for John Hurt, 1984. We're going to do something else. <laughs>